Greetings, Hushlings. Welcome back to another installment of Declassified Discussions. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Tonight, Hushlings, we're joined by a researcher, speaker, poet, and the author of They Only Come Out at Night, exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis. Hushlings, please welcome Vicki Joy Anderson. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. We're pretty, pretty excited. Uh, I think all three of us have had some type of weird nightly encounter in our lives that are very strange that we've talked about before on the show and maybe even not. Uh, but before we get going, can you share a little bit about yourself for some of our listeners that are not familiar with your work? And a side question after that, did something spark your interest in writing about sleep paralysis? Did something happen in your life beforehand or was it just an interest of yours? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Vicki Joy and yes, I'm an author and you can find my books on my website, vickijoyanderson.com. But the most recent one, as already mentioned, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. That book, by the way, is put out exclusively by L.A. Marzulli's publishing house, Spiral of Life. So you can find that only on his website, lamarzulli.net. So if you go to put money in Bezos' pocket, you're not going to find it on Amazon quite yet. So <laughs> head on over to L.A.'s site and he can get you a copy. But um, uh, my interest, which is, you know, probably not the greatest word, who, who's interested in having sleep paralysis, right? But I, I'd always intended on being a writer. Uh, since I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer, uh, but never in a million years did I think I would ever write about sleep paralysis, much less even mention it to anyone. But yes, so my I've got over 40 years of on-the-job training with uh, pretty habitual sleep paralysis episodes. They've slowed down and they've actually changed quite a bit as I've gotten older, but they started around three years old and it was pretty much... I don't want to say like a near nightly thing, but it would happen like three, four nights in a row and then it would kind of go away for a while and it would come back. And so it was pretty continuous until I was about 23 years old. Then I had a little bit of a break and it came back kind of full force. And now, and I don't know if we're going to get into this or not, but the the sleep paralysis that we talk about and that, that I'm pretty much honing in on in my book is now what I like to just kind of comically refer to as like a classic sleep paralysis and sleep paralysis 2.0 because if you talk to people my age or older they talk about you know the classic shadow people i can't breathe you know old hag incubus that succubus kind of stuff but if you talk to a millennial or anyone younger than a millennial they're talking about something much different and it is more of a metaverse reality shifting lucid travel sort of an experience their experiences aren't always terrifying and they aren't always unwanted. And I don't know if that is just the shift in technology or if it's just the shift in culture, because, um, you know, in, in the olden days, we, we, we got the crap scared out of us and maybe some of the younger generations aren't quite as resilient. I think my generation put up with a lot of garbage. Like, it, it, you know, we, we came from a generation where you don't like it too bad. You know, we didn't have choices like that. And so if we were getting, you know, scared to death at night, we just kind of took it like a man and went on there. We didn't really know we had options. Whereas nowadays people are, um, 
a lot more savvy and like, I ain't putting up with that. I, I think if the classic sleep paralysis started happening on a near nightly basis to an average young person, they would be like, oh no, I'm not having this. So they're getting a different breadcrumb trail a- into this. And it's very fascinating talking to the people that have more of the 2.0 version. But that's kind of the long way of answering the question is... Um, 47 years of experience of various, not just sleep paralysis, but out of body astral. And none of this was being sought out on my behalf. I was not looking to do any of this. It was what I call nocturnal harassment. Um, But when I finally figured out what I thought was going on, I thought, you know, this isn't going to make me very popular, but there are so many people suffering from this. I've got to write about this. We got to come out of the out of the woodwork and, and stop making this such a taboo topic of conversation. Mm. I love your outlook on it with the younger generation and almost experiencing this whole new thing that an older previous generation might not have experienced it the same way as they are. That's, that's a pretty interesting take on that, but I got to bring you back to when you said that when you were 23, you experienced what you would call a break in these episodes of sleep paralysis. Were you doing anything different in that time in your life or were, were you trying to prevent that or did it just sort of happen that way? No. In fact, believe it or not, you guys, I mean, this is going to sound weird, even though this was very traumatic and it happened frequently, it was just part of my life. I didn't really think about it or give it much thought. I didn't talk about it. I wasn't like trying to figure out what was going on or how to stop it. Like it was really just like, oh, I had another one of those. I mean, it was scary, but it. I think one of the reasons I had sort of a cavalier attitude about it was just to give you a little bit of background, and this might put some of the puzzle pieces together for you. I was born with a birth defect. I was born with a severe facial deformity. So from day one, I was in the hospital for the first month of my life. I didn't go home with my mom. And so from day one, it's like sticking IVs in my, in my hand, my first surgery, major, um, uh, cranial surgery was at 10 days old. And that was my life for 15 or 16 years. I had, uh, reconstructive surgeries, once or twice a year, all through my growing up years, my kid years, junior high, high school. So when something traumatic or terrifying or scary happened to me uh, in any other arena other than the hospital, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, here we go again. You know what I mean? It was like, I mean, I had all of the appropriate emotions and reactions that went with the fear, but with with the hospital, I didn't have a choice in it. I couldn't say, hey, mom and dad, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. Or, hey, I don't want to go to school. The kids are mean. I didn't have choices. You know, in the 1970s, kids didn't have choices, okay? So you just dealt with it. And so I, it was the same thing with this. I just dealt with it. So I was not doing anything intentional to to get rid of it or anything. And the, the, the only thing that I speculated um, when it went away, because it went away for quite some time, was um, I had a older brother and he was dabbling in a lot of things that were really over the line um, by by way of like occult kind of stuff and, and magic and, and things like that. And when I moved away and went to college and he moved away and we no longer lived in the same house, it, it suddenly stopped. So coincidentally, I... It, I'm not, it's, it's circumstantial, but I know that once I 
moved out of the family house and was from that point forward living in my own homes where I kind of set the tone of what came in and what came out of that house. I didn't have it again um, until a later period. And when it came back was when my mom died. And I that obviously was a very traumatic event that triggered a lot of the childhood stuff that never got dealt with by way of, you know, like I've, like I've been saying this whole time, if you, if you have any sort of trauma in your youth and you are resilient and you're like, yeah, whatever, I got over it, I'm going to brush myself off, you eventually get to a point in your life where it comes back and says, I must be dealt with. And that happened to me at 40 years old. And so along with having to open up all those undealt with issues of, and traumas of, of childhood, I think you become very vulnerable when you're stressed out. If you have anxiety, if you have depression, if you're highly medicated, if you're in any sort of a vulnerable situation or you're emotionally or mentally stressed out or exhausted, you become more susceptible to sleep paralysis because it does kind of get you when you're down. Now, I personally am a person who likes to look for correlation in things. Mm -hmm. And I often always pose a question, like if you were to look at the statistics of people that are affected by sleep paralysis, could you look over enough case studies to really point out, all right, there's a large chunk of people that had major medical trauma throughout their lives and this is when it hit or major psychological emotional trauma and even you talking about your brother some occult ties there so i wonder about the correlation between the people that have sleep paralysis versus don't and if there is some sort of underlying thing that ties it all together between people yeah that is a great question mike i'm so glad you asked that so it's kind of too layered because the thing that almost all of us have in common is some sort of trauma, but there's tons of people who went through a lot of trauma and they never had sleep paralysis. So there's a second tier. So what, what most of us have in common is some sort of trauma. For me, it was all the medical stuff and being in the hospital away from my parents for weeks at a time and things like that. Um, for others, it can be sexual or physical abuse. Uh, it can be something as severe as like ritual abuse. If you're in a generational, like a satanic generational family and you're, you're undergoing satanic ritual abuse, occult, Freemasonry, any sort of like brotherhood kind of family that you're in. Um, but it can be trauma like your parents were divorced. A anything that traumatic that happens before three years of three years old, so it, it changes the brain development and, and it, it, it changes the way you experience and view life. And it puts you in an adrenaline saturated kind of survival mode. And so, uh, that sort of thing, because it is affecting the brain chemistry and the chemicals and things in your head, that is where I believe that's the, that's the laboratory of sleep paralysis. It's all pineal gland, uh, dopamine, uh, sleep states, you know, theta waves and, and REM cycles. And so when, when you've got a lot of brain activity up there, that's already running amok, you are sort of more susceptible from the get go for this sort of thing. But if you dig even deeper, and this is where it gets tricky, uh, because it's sometimes hard to get to the root of the matter when the root of this was prior to your own lifetime. In other words, it can be ancestral, 
it can have to do with bloodline. And, you know, this is where we start getting into kooky stuff or fringe stuff. And, you know, this is where um, anyone other than a conspiracy theory kind of starts to fall off the conversation and go, yeah, okay, here we go. But the fact of the matter is that there are bloodlines and whether it is a royal bloodline, an elite bloodline, there are bloodlines on on the planet now that go all the way back to antediluvian times. And uh, antediluvian meaning post or pre rather um, pre great flood. You know where the the alleged Nephilim, if you're familiar with the Nephilim, um, were on on the earth. So uh, pre Pre-flood, we had these angelic beings com- coming down Mount Hermon, which the Watchers. So we have full-blooded angelic spiritual realm inhabitant creatures coming down to Earth and mating with the women. And so now you've got demigod spawn, and people are going, "Okay, what does this have to do with sleep paralysis?" I'm getting there. So when you had the demigod spawn, they they became the kings. They're, they're the ones that ruled the world. They set up their kingdoms. They set up their cities. They named their cities after themselves. They were powerful people. And if you go into Old Testament history, like King David and Goliath and all of these nations that were always warring with Israel and, you know, all the ites, you know, the, the Gadites and the Amalekites and the Mosquito Bites and everybody that they were after, right? Many of these ites were not fully human. They were actually these angelic offsprings those bloodlines they didn't really die they 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 said that they were wiped off out in the flood but if you read genesis 6 carefully it says that there were giants in the land in those days and also afterwards and they reiterated themselves after the flood and that goes all into nimrod and the tower of babel and um i i tell you i'm i'm so upset with how absolutely boring uh, the church has made the Bible. The Bible is like an excruciatingly supernatural book. If you know how to read it and you know the culture and the context, the language, the, the you know, the history, the geography, um, Tower of Babel. I mean, I could get off onto this massive tangent about that tower and what that was. And that was probably a antiquated CERN going on there. Um, if you read in the book of Jubilees, they weren't just trying to build a tall building and make a name for themselves. They were actually trying to recreate uh, Mount Hermon. They were trying to recreate that Stargate where they could get back into the spirit realm and dethrone God and rule the world. That's what they it, look at every movie we've ever seen in the last 30 years that ruling the world, destroying the world. It's the theme in so many of our movies. So all that to say, these bloodlines still exist and they've still been completely assimilated into the human race and so uh they have survived and you know there's all of these things you know we we just talk about these secret societies and all you know we talk about the illuminati and the masons and all this but if you go back to antediluvian times those were snake brotherhoods they were serpent brotherhoods they were dragon courts they were blood drinking cults of kish and things like this and um so there's people um, that have sleep paralysis and all of these experiences and they're being dragged into the astral realm and they're having all these um, astral experiences or the council of eight is coming to them and wanting to, you know, commune with them or ascended masters. And 
there's all, it's all these people going, what the hell? Like what, what is happening to me? I'm just trying to get a good night's sleep and I, I'm not playing with the Ouija board. I'm not on heroin. Like what, what in the world? And it's even more confusing for really super religious people because they're like, Hey man, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm moral. I'm what, why is this happening to me? Why do I have demons after me? And then they go to the church and it's made even worse because they're pretty much just told in the church. Usually if you got demons after you, it's because you're sinful. You're not really a Christian. You're a hypocrite. You've got some secret sin. And then, so then they're gaslit and shamed into even getting help. Um, So all that to say that it's not just the trauma. If you are a part of one of these, you know, 10,000 year old elite demigod bloodlines, you might not know who you are. They know who you are. They know their family tree. They know who belongs to them and they know who they want to evangelize, so to speak. Correct. And so, you know, everybody's always thinking that the Christians are the only people out there evangelizing, but the, the other side is also evangelizing. They are, um, it, it, it's the exact same thing as, as what Jesus was trying to do, but it's the opposite. Jesus came down and tried to tell his people, this is your identity. This is the family you belong to. This is the kingdom you belong to. And the other side is doing the exact same thing. They are appearing all over the world to their, to their family, and they are trying to get people to wake up to their true identity. It's, it's basically boiled down to a seed war uh, that goes all the way back to, to Genesis, where um, when Eve um, was, was told that there would be enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent. And that, that enmity and that seed war is still going on today. And one of the subtle evidences of this war is that people all over the planet are experiencing these nocturnal uh, encounters with these angelic beings. So you think that the people that are, I guess, quote unquote, suffering or more susceptible to having sleep paralysis or even what they would call seeing entities or abduction experiences, maybe, do you think that these people actually could have some tie in a bloodline to just being more susceptible to having these experiences because of their DNA? But I guess it's subjective for some people. If you're more religious, it's demonic uh possession or some way of looking at that or if you're less religious or spiritual it could be a positive thing but most people that experience sleep paralysis it's usually something negative and it's usually something very frightening could there be another aspect to it what what are your thoughts on if it's extraterrestrial do you think that that just could be the angelic beings that you're talking about yeah, so the, I do think that there's a very, very close tie between UFO experiencers and sleep paralysis experiencers. Um, obviously, the experience is different. Some of the things are very different. You know, UFO experiencers, they can be driving in their car. They can be wide awake, you know. And even though there are UFO abductions that do happen in conjunction with sleep paralysis, but even even there, you can usually tell within five minutes of someone telling you their sleep paralysis story, whether or not it's an alien abduction or it's a astral abduction. And it's little things like uh, sleep paralysis experiencers will talk about dark, darkness, and how the entities that show up in the room are darker than dark in some cases. It's like the they see where something is, not because they can see it, but because it's actually blacker than the black. 
And the sleep paralysis entities tend to show up at the bedroom door. And I go into great detail in my book about that in chapter four. It's called uh, uh, Threshold Covenants and Astral Vampires. And I go into all of the uh, ancient threshold covenants and how they come to the door. And um, whereas UFO sleep paralysis experiences, it's a bright light and it's usually coming in through the window and you're usually getting pulled in, in towards the window rather than um, upward into the astral. So there, there's, there's little nuances and differences. And, and I think that the sleep paralysis experience is different. It's not laboratory. It's not genetics. You don't have people talking about, you know, pregnancies and eggs and, you know, uh, experiments and all that. You have them talking about other things. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is, I also think that the sleep paralysis experience is an abduction. And this is where it gets really tricky. Uh, UFO experiencers will often tell you that pre-hypnosis, they had no recollection of anything that happened to them. The reason that they knew something happened to them was there's missing time. And what gets really clever with the sleep paralysis experience is nobody, when their alarm goes off at 6, 7, 8 a.m., it questions what happened to them the last six to eight hours because they they know they've been asleep. And so no one's alarmed, you know, no pun intended, when they wake up in the morning and uh, five, six, seven, eight hours have gone by, right? So no one with sleep paralysis, I think, has ever really realized that they have missing time. And so it's it's a very clever that it's a very clever timing. They're coming to us at a time at night when we're already physiologically paralyzed during certain uh, sleep stages. Uh, and so we're already somewhat incapacitated. And they're also coming at a time when we're groggy. We can't quite tell if we're awake or asleep and we're not ever gonna question missing time. Now, here is where I think a lot of the stuff online about sleep paralysis is way, way, way off. When people talk about sleep paralysis, they talk about about a 10 minute period in their room that they can remember. Sometimes it's longer, but the average person, it's about a 10 minute period where they wake up, they can't move, they're seeing something in the room, they can't move, they might feel choked, they might feel assaulted. And then they fully wake up and they're like, oh, thank God that's over. And when they talk about the sleep paralysis, they talk about those few moments awake in their bedroom. I am of the persuasion that the entire abduction into the astral realm has been done during the sleeping stages. And when you wake up, just like the UFO experiencers, you have no memory of what happened. Now, if you if you're the conspiratorial type and you you want a fringy story, you can say they wiped your memory and men in black came with like little flashlights and smashed like slashed it in your face, whatever you want. It can also, again, they can be taking advantage of the physiology of our brain. We know from DID that when people go through extreme trauma, they can disassociate and they can compartmentalize, and the core person will not remember the trauma. Another alter or something took that trauma. So what I think is happening, I know this from personal experience. I can tell you from 47 years of this stuff, my sleep paralysis experiences always start in a dream. I'm dead asleep. I'm having a dream. And at some point, something in the dream shifts 
the whole space shifts and you instantly know, oh crap, oh crap. And for me, it's a vibration, which is very astral. It's, it's a, it's a, it, there's frequencies in the, in the astral. And a lot of people who, who astral project or who have sleep paralysis talk about the vibrations that they hear. And that is like the, the tearing, that's the separation. Um, and so for me, my, I'm always having a dream and then it turns into a nightmare and then it, it starts in the dream and then I wake up. And so it took me decades to figure this out. There's a whole portion of the sleep paralysis experience that many of us aren't remembering. It's very similar to the UFO abductees in that there are things that are going on in the astral realm that we don't remember. But when you wake up from sleep paralysis, what you're really experiencing, people talk about, I can't breathe, I can't move, my heart's racing, all the saliva is dried up in my mouth. What you're in, what you're in essence explaining there is a massive adrenaline crash. You know, it, it's the same response if, you know, you think a semi is going to hit you on the freeway, you know. And so what I think is happening in some cases is people are waking up and they don't have a conscious memory of what may or may not have happened in the dream world or in the astral, but the body still has full memory of it. And the body is still showing all of the signs of, of trauma and fear and fright and adrenaline and coming down off of an adrenaline high, which I think right there, that should be the tip off that maybe something more happened than just I woke up and couldn't move or I woke up and saw a shadow. Because I think a big reason why sleep paralysis sufferers aren't taken really seriously is if you just tell someone, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was really scared and I couldn't move. And I think I saw something by my door. People go, well, that's not really that scary. And people cannot, people who do experience sleep paralysis have trouble expressing the levels of terror that they are encountering to someone who hasn't encountered it. And so I'm, I'm probably way off course of, of the question that you asked there, Dave, but I do think that uh, the UFO no. experience, it, it doesn't always have to be a demon. Um, there are many, I think, uh, players involved in this. But the, the dream state is really weird because it's kind of taboo. You know, you tell somebody, oh, I had a nightmare. I had a bad dream. They're like, Haha, you small child. They kind of just wave it off as as something that's not real. But like you said, you're conscious while you're awake and you're conscious while you're asleep as well. And that missing time that could be there that you have no idea what happens. I can definitely attest to experience of having a lot of stress. And then all of a sudden after years, maybe even more than a decade of actually remembering dreams that are just awful dreams and on like a weekly basis. So it's interesting that it's all kind of in one thing. I've had experiences yeah. where I've woken up and thought I saw something like blacker than black looking around the corner, but can't be definitive. But dreams, it can be definitive because I wake up and I remember them. Yeah. They scare the crap out of you. Absolutely. You know, I'm glad we're going down this avenue, Dave, because I, even though I've written a book on it and I've written the book on like the most terrifying version of it, there are varying levels of why people have this and what's going on. And I do tell people, cause some people get pretty excited about this and I want to, Oh, I wish I had sleep paralysis. I want to experience it. And it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> but for some of those people, I say Occam's razor, like the most logical explanation is very often the, the explanation and let me, let me give you one example of that. Um, 
there was research done by a, uh, a scientist that it was it was actually discovered that the the human ear can hear uh, 20 hertz and above. Now, obviously, there's there's always those exceptions to the rule and people with their hawk hearing that can hear you 10 miles away and all this stuff, right? But for the most part, anything below 20 hertz, we can't audibly pick up on it with our ear, but the body can pick up on it. And there was a man who was a, he was a scientist and he kept seeing shadow people in his laboratory at night when he would work late. But being a scientist, he was like, I got to get to the bottom of this. And what he discovered was that there was a fan in his laboratory that operated at 18 hertz. And after much experimentation, you can read about this online. Uh, if there is something with a frequency of 18 hertz or under 20 hertz in, in your room, in your space, in your basement, whatever, you're not going to hear anything, but your eyeballs are actually going to start vibrating at that frequency. And one of the effects of vibrating eyeballs is you see shadows. So when you see all these ghost hunters, you know, that are doing their little shows and they're, you know, oh, and their meters are going crazy, you know, uh, all it would take would be uh, some sort of area in that house that had something with a frequency emitting that, you know, whether it's an old meter on the side of the house that's gone haywire or something. So sometimes, you know, I know we all like to talk about the crazy stuff and the demons and the Nephilim and, you know, the, the, the astral realm and all that. But uh, if you are under extreme amounts of stress, you're going through a job change, or I, I cannot even tell you guys how many emails I've gotten from people who are telling me about their one isolated sleep paralysis incident that they've had in their life. And the first sentence is right after my divorce. So don't hear me saying that divorce leads to sleep paralysis. What I'm telling you is that when you go through emotional trauma, stress, fear, how am I going to pay my bills now that half the income's gone? What if I lose my house? Um, when, when we go through like, Mine came back when my mom died. It was an extremely stressful time of, of grief and loss. And we are extremely susceptible when we are not mentally and physically and uh, emotionally stable. And that's why I always tell people, hey, I know this isn't, you know, the story you want to hear. Everybody comes to me. They want their, you know, grand exorcism story that they can tell everybody, right? Sometimes it's like, you're not getting enough sleep. You're not eating right. You're eating all this genetically modified food. You haven't taken more than 20 steps in, in a week. You know, you're sitting there in your dark basement, you know, on stuffing nachos down and playing video games until your, your eyes are about to pop out of your head. This is just, you're, you're just rife for, for a, a stressful sleep pattern. Your, your circadian rhythm is completely off. And when your circadian rhythm is off, um, there are brain processes that, that happen at certain times of the night. And if you're not asleep during those times, those defragging processes and things don't, don't happen. So I, I do think that a lot of this stuff can be really, really poor, mismanaged health, stress, tragedy, grief, trauma, heartache. Um, if you go into the, into the spiritual realm, like if, if you're talking to the Christians and the Catholics, Absolutely. If, if you are out 
you know, I'm not even making, uh, I'm, I'm making an allowance for the audience because I just want everyone to hear me. I'm not making a statement about the Bible or Christianity or Jesus or Catholicism. I'm making a statement just about human psychology. If I think, if I believe that eating a lime is going to kill me, I'm never going to eat a lime. But if I do eat a lime, I'm going to have fear because I believe my whole life that that's going to kill me. So hey, everybody else around me knows that you can eat a lime and not die. But if I truly believe and I go against my own conscience, there are all sorts of mental, emotional, physical, physiological, and spiritual repercussions that break apart when we start to do that. So for the religious people, if if you are sinning against a covenant that you've gone into or you're sinning against your own conscience, there's going to be a fallout for that. So if you believe I absolutely should not be playing with the Ouija board and you're doing it anyway, then you are actually, you know, setting up the pins for your own mental, you know, downfall. Right. So, um, I don't want to say that there's not things that we can do to open doors. So just hear, hear me clearly. There are absolutely things that we can do to open doors and invite these things in. And if you don't believe me, watch any horror movie that's been put out in the last 20 years. I cannot even believe how overt they are now becoming in putting this theme into to horror movies. We all know that you have to invite a vampire in. If, if they don't cross the threshold, they can't bother you, right? But that used to be a very subtle piece of vampire movies. If you watched a vampire movie, you'd just see the knock on the door and they'd say, come in and you'd see the foot go over. And you as a viewer were savvy enough to know, oh no, she just invited him in. We knew that. But I, I'm not sure yet if they're just, if they think that the audience is just dumbed down now, or if they're just being so in our face, but, um, the movies now, they don't just have the knock at the door scene. They make it abundantly clear that you have to give permission to these things for them to enter. And again, I go into great detail about the threshold covenants in chapter four of my book, but I'll give you just two recent, somewhat recent examples. Um, in the movie, Let the Right One In, it's a Swedish movie with uh, English subtitles, but then there's an American re a remake of it called uh, Let Them In, I think it is. And there's a scene in both of these movies where the girl knocks on the boy's door and says, can I come in? And instead of verbalizing it, the boy just like beckons her with his finger, like, you know, the come on. And and she just kind of shakes her head no. And, and so then he he does a grander sweep of his hands, like, but he doesn't say anything. And she's like, you have to invite me in. And I'm like, oh, man, they're just getting so overt with this. And um, another recent example is in the movie that's still out in the theaters now, Nefarious, where the psychologist is interviewing uh, the, the guy on death row who, you know, claims to have this demon entity, um, possessing him named nefarious and nefarious is like, uh, is bargaining with the psychiatrist because the psychiatrist wants to talk to the core personality and he makes it abundantly clear. Like, I want you to give me permission to, you know, enter into you. And there's this grand scene where the guy finally, because he doesn't believe any of it. It's like, I permit you to come in to me. You're allowed to, you know, he, he just reiterates it over and over again. And 
it's it's truth in plain sight, guys. I mean, I know we watch these movies and we just think that they're fantastic and, you know, fantastic as in outrageous. And this is all just made up and it's the creative minds of Hollywood. But they are putting actual uh, spiritual and biblical doctrine into these films. The, this vampire lore, it's actually not vampire code. It's the it's the it's the code of the entire spiritual realm, good and bad. And I'll give you one example of this. There's a verse in scripture that I think is really misunderstood by a lot of Christians. There's a verse in Revelation where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, I will come in and eat with him, which means I'll covenant with him, right? And everybody kind of has, you know, turned that into that's the salvation prayer. If, if Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, you can invite him into your heart. It's like, you guys, it's so much, there's so much more supernatural going on there. He's actually letting you know that any entity, angelic, fallen, good, bad, they have to have human permission before they enter into our world, our home, our heart, our life, our mind. And so what, what's, What's interesting to me about that is the vampires have kind of taken this over like, hey, this is this is the demon code. This this is for, you know, this is how you let the bad guys in. It's actually how you let the good guys in, too, actually. So um, I, I've probably veered way off topic of, of the actual question at that point, but. <laughs> You're good. You're totally good. Um <laughs> So you have mentioned chapter four of your book twice now. First, when you had mentioned that people are seeing these darker than dark entities, the majority of these experiencers seeing these entities or figures in their doorways, even though their experience more than likely began while they were still in some sort of dream state. Yes. And you continued to speak on how people in some way or shape would need to invite these entities, beings, figures into their lives, into their homes. So can you elaborate on chapter four a little bit? Why are people seeing these things in their doorways when odds are the experience started a dream state? Why the door? Why not right next to their bed or on top of their dresser? Like why the doorway? And how are people inviting those entities? Yep. Okay. All right. So I just a little disclaimer up front. There are people who are so far into this that when they wake up, the thing is already on their chest. Sometimes it's right by the side of the bed. Sometimes it's in the corner of the room, the black mist, you know, at the end of the bed. So just don't get hung up on the, the semantics of this. The things can show up elsewhere, but most commonly they're at that door. I, I think they like the dramatic, like the, the building of fear as they, they slowly come towards, you know, so I think, I think they're kind of drama queens. I think they like, you know, the building, the suspense, but with, with that said, I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background, and then I'm going to tie it into the theological background here. All the way back in time, we're back to antediluvian times. We're pre-flood. When, when man and woman first inhabited Earth for the very first time, they were an agrarian society. There were not cities. They were, they were all farmers. They each had their own plot of land, their own home. There was a patriarch of that home. The patriarch of that home was the high priest of that home. We had a polytheistic uh, uh, religious society and they worshiped gods and they had altars, but because there were no cities, there were no temples, there were no churches, there were no synagogues. 
your home was the temple, you were the high priest, and the altar of the home was the threshold. Now, going all the way back, it was the hearthstone. And when they lived in caves and they didn't have modern dwellings, the hearthstone, the fire, that was the threshold of the home. That was where there was fellowship. That was where there was food. That was where people gathered. And that was where they made the sacrifices to their gods. That fire, that hearthstone was the altar. As we became more and more civilized, that hearthstone started getting closer and closer. So then it turned into the the threshold of, of the home became the altar. And uh, you even see this, it's a subtle detail, but even in the Old Testament, when all of the children of Israel, whenever Moses or Aaron are making some sort of decree, it'll, it'll make these subtle references to where all the men of the home were standing by their doorways. It's because it was, this was a, all of the high priests of the home were standing at the altars. And so as, as time wore on, the hearthstones, it, it went first, it went in, it went into the kitchen. It was, it was basically for the cooking. And then it went into with the, with the invention of the cook stove, it went into the living room and it was just a warmth device. And then as, as heating and air came into play, it became just a decorative area. So it has fallen out of knowledge that the, that the doorway of our home is the altar of our home. It is where we determine the God of the home. It's where we make those sacrifices. Now they are banking on the fact, the spirit realm, when I say they, the spirit realm is banking on the fact that most of us have forgotten that we're out of touch with it. And it doesn't mean anything to us, even when we hear it. Well, that doesn't apply to us anymore. That's what we'll say. Uh, but an interesting um, caveat in Ephesians for Ephesians six twelve is like the spiritual warfare, you know, linchpin verse of the whole Bible. Uh, it talks about the archons and the rulers of darkness and the fallen angels and the, in the high places. And that's who our battle is against. Those are our enemies, you know, so it's this culminating, you know, oorah, you know, militaristic verse in scripture about the spiritual warfare. But when it talks about the rulers of darkness in the new Testament's written in Greek, the word for darkness, there's skatas, S-K-O-T-A-S in the English skatas. And it means darkness in the way that you would think it means but there's an interesting um, definition. There, there, there's a micro definition to the word. The darkness that is allowing these rulers to get by with all of this warfare is the skotas implies human ignorance of divine things. In other words, they're banking on our stupidity that we're not. They're going to get in through these loopholes. And we even see that in the Garden of Eden. They, they That wasn't a fair fight. They duped mankind. And so it was human ignorance that allowed them to, or naivety that allowed them to proceed with that plan. So with all that saying, the the doorway of our home is, is the threshold. Now, I, I was consternated for quite a while in my research because I thought this still doesn't line up perfectly because the entities aren't coming to our front door. They're coming to our bedroom door, which means they already got let in the house. So, but why is there this second door? And I was consternated because I'm not the type that likes loosey goosey research. Like if something doesn't make sense to me, it's not going to make sense to a lot of the people that are hearing it and they're going to ask questions. And I don't like being asked questions. I can't answer. So it, it took me a while. And what I discovered ironically 
is that this ties into ancient betrothal customs. Threshold covenants and betrothal covenants were very much the same. And we, we still have some of them today. They linger. Why do, why do we carry a bride over the threshold? There's covenants going on there. And in the old days, they were blood covenants. And uh, the blood would be shed at the door. And when you made a blood covenant with, with whoever was going to come to your house, you, you would slaughter an animal there at the door. And they would wipe the blood on the lintels. Sometimes the two men in covenant would dip their hand in the blood and they would either put their handprint on the actual door or they'd shake hands. And this is where we kind of get like the blood brother thing of today. This is even where we get shaking hands, handshake on a business deal. In the old days, when it was blood covenants, they were shaking hands and blood. Now this is our ungorified version. So when you're making a, a business deal or a business transaction with someone and you shake their hands, that is a uh, a lingering evidence of ancient blood covenants. And these were threshold covenants. These the, the blood was was shed at the door. Well, what I wound up finding out was in in ancient Semitic betrothal covenants, the groom would go and prepare a house for the bride. Then he would come back at a time and he'd get the bride. He would carry her over the threshold into his home. And once that blood covenant, once that threshold covenant was made, he was in essence doing what we do now when we make our vows. I will cherish you. I will keep you in sickness and health. I won't leave you. I'll lay down my life for you. That was what the blood covenant entailed. What a lot of people don't know is that inside of the wedding tent, there was a second inner chamber. There was a second door inside of the wedding tent, and it was called the Tamian Chamber. The woman had control of this threshold. She would go back there and she'd get herself all dolled up, and she was back there, you know, preparing herself for the consummation. And the the man would eagerly come and knock on the door, like, Are you ready? Getting kind of anxious out here. And she'd be like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And so he would keep in his eagerness coming and knocking on the door, and she'd be like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And some of you may already be seeing the correlation now between what I'm saying and Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and eat with me. So this is why I dislike it when Christians reduce that verse down to Jesus is just knocking on your heart and wanting to be your best friend forever. What he's actually doing there is knocking on the inner chamber. I want to come even deeper into this chamber. I don't, I, we're not just roommates here. Like I want to get into the Tamian chamber. I want this consummated. And, and I don't mean he wants to have sex with you. I mean this, this intimacy. He wants that intimacy on a spiritual level. So what's happening is I believe that the spirit realm that has fallen is mimicking this threshold covenant. They're getting in over the door and they're coming to the bedroom door at night because that's the Tamian chamber. It is not a coincidence that a lot of people with sleep paralysis, not everybody, but many people, they don't talk about it because this is the part nobody wants to talk about. A lot of people, once those things get inside, the people are assaulted and sometimes sexually assaulted. We hear about the incubus and the succubus. This is not a coincidence. That is a entering of the Tamian chamber where the wedding is consummated. And so what I tell people is 
in the spirit realm, you can explain the sleep paralysis phenomenon however you want on earth. The scientists explain it this way. The psychologists explain it this way. The Christians explain it this way. But from the perspective of the spirit realm, when they have crossed over the threshold of that inner chamber, you have covenanted with them. You've let them in. You're in a covenant with them. You are betrothed to those entities, which is why it is so difficult for some people to, to shake this phenomenon. They can't get rid of it. Uh, there, there is an actual covenant going on there. And there are ways to get out of it, uh, but you have to know the rules. You can't have human ignorance of divine things. That's what they're banking on. And that is why they've gone so far out of their way, especially in the churches, to dumb down what to dumb down and strip completely away all of the supernatural aspects in in the scriptures because now we have we have absolutely no idea what's going on we just think hey man i had a plate of spaghetti before i went to bed and had these like wicked dreams and i got to knock that off <laughs> yeah the whole threshold thing actually makes me think of passover story yes. of Passover yes, and the blood of the lamb around the frame and not permitting death to cross over. Yeah. Just a thing that popped into my head, but I just wanted to take a step way back to the beginning. You talked about traditional kind of sleep paralysis versus this 2.0. Can you yeah. uh, let us in on what the differences are and what are they seeing nowadays with this 2.0 version? Yeah. Yep. So, I don't even know what to call it yet, you guys. Like, I don't quite think that where they're going is the astral realm. Some people like talk about the metaverse, and I'm like, well, maybe. So the best way I can explain it so people get it is I think it's the upside down. It, it's this parallel dimension where people, they, they have a sleep paralysis-like sensation, but instead of demons in the room and whatever, they... They, they believe they it's like a dream within a dream. They wake up, but they're not really awake and they'll get out of their beds. And I have experienced this a handful of times. You'll get out of your bed and you'll be looking at your surroundings. And this is something that I always tell people. It's very hard to pay attention to what's going on because sometimes these episodes are fast and sometimes you're so scared and you're so trying to just get out of it that you're not observing as best as you can. Don't prolong the experience, but as best as you can, observe your surroundings. Because if you think you're in your bedroom, there's always, I guarantee it, there's always going to be one thing wrong. It's the totem. It's, it's the black cat. It's the glitch in the matrix. There's something that's going to tell you you're not really there. There's going to be a mirror hanging on the wall that you don't own. There's going to be a headboard that doesn't look like yours. The door is going to be on the wrong wall. There is going to be curtains instead of blinds. You're going to be on a chair instead of a couch. There's always going to be something off. Now, if you have these experiences frequently and you don't like them and you're trying to get out of them, that is the point where you're, you can train yourself to go lucid. And I don't mean lucid in the new age sense where you go lucid and then you start traveling all over the place and be, you know, um, fulfilling all your fantasies. What I use lucid dreaming for is to get out, to escape. Because once you're lucid, you can say, I need a car. I need the car keys. Like you, I, I need to wake up. You know, you, you can control it. So you'll get up and you'll be walking around thinking like, man, that was a bad dream. And then all of a sudden you'll notice something. And so 
the first time this happened to me, I got up and I, I walked here into this room I'm in right now. And I'm like, oh, that was a doozy of a dream, man. I almost had sleep paralysis there. Oh, thank God. And I looked out my window and I saw my Jeep parked out on blacktop. Now, I don't have blacktop out that window. And my Jeep's parked on the other side and there's no blacktop. It's parked on grass. And so I instantly was, I, I literally said in the dream, I'm in the upside down. That's how I worded it in the dream. And so at that point I knew where I was and I was able to, to protect myself. So what's happening with, with these people is they're waking up and they're in a, a realm that looks just like theirs, but the air is a little bit thicker. It's a little bit slower. It's something's like off. Um, in another one of these instances, I, I ran out my door and I went next door and I, I was knocking on the door to like my neighbor was going to help me. And I've been in my neighbor's home. So I know what it looks like. And when I opened the door and walked through, I was in a house that I lived in when I was five years old. And so my scenery changed and it continued to do that. I would go into other rooms and then it would be a scenery change instead of a room change and things like that. And um, what I'm finding is when people have these experiences, they don't wake up terrified, but they wake up exhausted. So it, a lot of people, whether you've had classic sleep paralysis or this 2.0, one of the other hints or tip-offs that you can you can use as a sign as to was I just asleep or was I somewhere else was I in some dimensional portal some astral realm some other plane one of the ways you can tell is if you go to bed and you get seven eight nine hours sleep and you wake up and you're exhausted the whole day that probably means you you weren't really getting restful REM and deep sleep that night and this is kind of what happens to me most commonly now. I don't get a lot of the classic sleep paralysis anymore at all. I don't see the shadow people anymore. I'm not getting the threats to drag me to hell and no one can hear you scream and all this cliche, it's 1970s horror movie crap, you know, like from, from, from back in the day. Now what's happening is I will have, scientists say that in an eight hour night, the average person will have uh, five dreams. If, if everything is okay, they don't have any sort of narcolepsy or anything like that. And so I'll, I'll sleep with my little Fitbit on and I'll, I'll check my, my sleep patterns the next day. And it doesn't matter if I've slept six hours or eight hours. I have a minimum of seven REM cycles a night, which is unusual. It's, it's above par. And in all of my dreams now, and I will say my dreams changed after my mom died. My dreams used to be like everyone else's dreams. Like it, they didn't make sense. They were just like little clips. When you wake up, you couldn't piece them together. It didn't make sense. There was no cohesion. Now I dream all night and they're long plot lines. There's a cohesive beginning, middle, end story. Sometimes it's like, I call them Seinfeld dreams. You'll have all these dreams and then at the, you'll have this last dream and everything comes together and they all of them you realize are connected. And um, tons of people show up in these dreams, tons of people, and you can see their faces and they're having elaborate conversations with you and they're wanting you to go places and you're in airplanes and you're in New York City and now you're in Amsterdam and you're all over the place and you just, you wake up absolutely exhausted. And um, this isn't the same thing 
as reality shifting. There's a whole like billion plus follower TikTok uh, hashtag on um, reality shifting or shifting. That is just the new trendy name for lucid dreaming. These are the people that are intentionally going to various realms at night. Like I want to go to the Harry Potter universe. Well, I want to go to the DC Marvel comic universe. Like that's something different. And what I'm talking about here is sleep paralysis 2.0. That's what I coined it because you're not being harassed in the same way. You're let's put it this way. You're not in a horror movie dream anymore. You're in a science fiction movie now but you're waking up and you're still exhausted. You still can't get them to stop. You still have no control over these dreams and they're relentless. And, and so it, I feel funny even calling it sleep paralysis because we so associate sleep paralysis with terror and entities and beings and hellfire and damnation and, and, and all of this stuff. But um, if you think of sleep paralysis in terms of when I'm asleep at night, and I'm being harassed by entities in the spirit realm. In that way, this is still, I think, just another iteration of it um, because it is still a form of harassment. And the people that are experiencing this are coming to me every bit as frazzled and exhausted and literally wanting to die because they can't get any sleep. It, it, it's, it's a form of uh, astral insomnia, I think I would, I would call it. And so it's still driving people to, to madness. And there is a prophetic verse in the book of Daniel, which Daniel is kind of like the Old Testament version of Revelation, where he saw the prophecies of the end times. And one of the things that it said when, you know, when the beast system takes over is that he will wear out the saints. And so it doesn't say he's going to murder them. It doesn't say he's going to drag them to hell or chop their toes off one at a time. It says he's going to simply wear them out. And I do think that this is just one of those tactics um, if you want to wear somebody out, if you want someone to question their faith or question their reality, um, shift them into a different spiritual plane every night and have them interact with a bunch of people that that on a, on a quantum level and wake up exhausted night after night after night. It, it's diabolical uh, what they're what they're able to do. And I, I don't think all of this is is demonic. Going back, Dave, to one of the earlier questions you had. Um, not all of this is demonic. Some of this is also militarized and they have also now through technology, through technology, they have the ability to recreate every aspect of sleep paralysis. And I think that there are targeted individuals out there who are experiencing this on a nightly basis and it's not demonic and it's not spiritual. Um, whether it's a military family or a bloodline family, um, or a ritual situation, there are people being targeted and it, it's not a, a demonic experience at all. It's more technological. What a uh, better way to drive somebody nuts than to not have sleep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, look at the, look at the military guys who would have the foxhole, you know, they, they would come home, you know, having to try to stay awake in those foxholes for weeks at a time. You, you deprive a person to sleep, they will go insane. Vicky, we want to thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been a really, really interesting conversation, especially personally hearing some of the stuff you have to say is some of the stuff that I may have experienced myself. But we appreciate you, your work, and we hope the Hushlings enjoy this conversation. And thanks for definitely being with us. Thank you, guys. It was great being here.
Before we go, please let everybody know where they can find your book, your website, where they can find you, Vicky. Please, the stage is yours. Promote yourself. Thank you. Thank you. So VickyJoyAnderson.com is the website. That's Vicky with an I, uh, Anderson, S-O-N. On Instagram, I think I'm Vicky Joy Author. And uh, the book, They Only Come Out at Night, is available at lamarzuli.net. And you can check me out these days, I think like three nights a week. We have a YouTube channel called Through the Black 2. Tom Dunn and I and a couple of our buddies uh, will do shows um, three, four nights a week. I think we're doing this season. Um, And we talk on that show about everything occult, occult crime, um, satanic ritual abuse, kind of delving into the occult aspects of things. Um, We do a music show on Thursday, Audiotopsy, where we do presuppositional analysis of song lyrics. That one's kind of fun. We do that with Kenny C. And then I also write for realdarknews.com. All right, Vicki, thank you so much again for coming on. Great, great episode. And uh, we really enjoyed having you here. So thank you. Maybe we'll have you on again soon to talk more. Would love it. All right, Hushlings, that is going to do it for this Declassified Discussions. I am Mystery Mike. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Sook Frank Sanders.